This is a terrorist attack. Somebody has died for the white nationalist cause on American soil. And how was your weekend? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, in our nation's capital on 105.5 FM, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe Every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell Fellow Says Me from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another two-thrilling adventure that we call the Bradcast. Uh, Yes, we will get to what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend in a moment. We'll also be joined by a, a former skinhead to get some perspective on what the hell is going on in this country. Um, But just a reminder, since so much of the media have, not surprisingly in this case, moved their coverage over the past few days to the events in Charlottesville uh, over the weekend uh, and in recent days, uh, just a reminder, friendly reminder, a reminder that you probably don't want, but we've still got a threat of war. Potentially even nuclear war. Oh, um, yeah, there's Yeah, remember that? that? Oh, uh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. Hope your weekend was better than mine. Uh, it's a threat of war against a sovereign nation of uh, North Korea that's just sort of hanging in the air. And uh, as we noted on Friday's show, at the very end, as the news was just breaking, Donald Trump also tossed out the idea of taking military action against Venezuela. Yep, pretty much out of nowhere uh, during a, a press avail. So um, as if uh, Charlottesville isn't enough to be troubled about, there's a whole hell of a lot to be troubled about. Uh, and so you've tuned in to me to make you even more troubled. Sorry <laughs> about that. Um, along those lines, this should do it. This should do the trick. China will remain neutral if North Korea fires missiles at United States territory first. But should the U.S. launch a preemptive strike, as it has suggested it might, North Korea's chief ally, China, would come to the North's side. That, according to Newsweek on Friday. While not direct government policy, that particular verdict of how the country should react amid the unfolding unfolding nuclear threats from the U.S. and North Korea is contained in an editorial in the influential 
Communist Party-run Global Times newspaper on Friday. It reads, China should also make clear that if North Korea launches missiles that threaten U.S. soil first and the U.S. retaliates, China will stay neutral. If the U.S. and South Korea carry out strikes and try to overthrow the North Korean regime and change the political pattern of the Korean peninsula, China will prevent them from doing so. It went on to say that China opposes both uh, nuclear proliferation and war on the Korean peninsula. It will not encourage any side to stir up military conflict and will firmly resist any side which wants to change the status quo of the areas where China's interests are concerned. That piece also stated that the government was not able to persuade Washington or Pyongyang to, uh, to back down at this time. The relationship between China and North Korea has become strained in recent years, Newsweek reports, but there remains plenty to tie them together. For one, China has a strong interest in preventing Kim Jong-un's regime from being overthrown and then losing a key buffer to the U.S. interests on its immediate border. And there is also the matter of a mutual defense pact signed in 1961. Now, I know Donald Trump doesn't care about such... Uh, agreements, such uh, whether they're business agreements or defense pacts. But yes, China and North Korea signed a defense pact in 1961, which means that in the event of North, uh, North Korea being attacked, China would be legally obliged to, quote, immediately render military and other assistance by all means at its disposal. Well, so there's that. So there's that, that little element of Trump's uh, promise of fire and fury against North Korea and his promise that the U.S. is locked and loaded against him as he uh, as he uttered as if he's in an action movie last week. Just mentioning that for now, because that little possibility of our president helping to launch to touch off at least World War Three kind of still hangs in the air, despite the attention turned for the harrowing moment towards Nazis marching through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. Speaking of which, in related matters, Washington Post reports today that early Saturday morning, the FBI arrested an Oklahoma man on charges that he tried to detonate what he thought was a thousand pound bomb. According to a criminal complaint filed in federal court, the man was acting out of hatred for the U.S. government and an admiration for Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh who blew up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building back in 1995, killing 168 people and injuring more than 600. Jerry Drake Varnell was arrested shortly after an attempt early Saturday morning to detonate a fake bomb that was packed into what he believed was a stolen cargo van outside of a Federal Reserve Bank in Oklahoma City. He was charged with attempting destruction of a, uh, of a building by means of an explosive device. According to the complaint, over the uh, over the course of a months-long undercover investigation by the FBI, Varnell made repeated statements about the extent of his hatred of the federal government. Domestic terrorism expert uh, J.J. McNabb at uh, at Forbes.com was detailing um, uh, via Twitter some of the uh, some of the details from this bomb plot that was described in the FBI complaint. Apparently, Varnell was looking to bomb a similar a building similar to what Timothy McVeigh had done in uh, in Oklahoma City in 1995. He considered multiple targets like the Federal Reserve, the IRS, banks, Facebook, 
but thought that it should be tied to the federal government. Varnell's target was the Federal Reserve Building in Oklahoma City. The Federal Reserve is a fairly common uh, boogeyman in uh, quote-unquote patriot circles, according to McNabb, a uh, symbolic target. The FBI complaint says Varnell lives with his mom on a property that has a bunker. The family is building a new home on the lot with a secret bunker room to grow pot. Oh, wow. There's that. According to the FBI affidavit, Varnell was, quote, upset with the government. He had a plan to go after government officials when the U.S. government collapsed saying, quote, I'm out for blood, according to the FBI, according to their affidavit. In any event, both the confidential uh, informant and undercover FBI agent gave Varnell an option to cancel his plot. But he was determined to carry it out anyway, according to the affidavit. He dialed the detonation number on a cell phone three times to wow. try to blow up that uh, that that fake bomb. Ask about human casualties. Apparently, he told the informant, you got to break a couple of eggs to make an omelet. Domestic terrorism expert McNabb says you just can't make this stuff up. He was worried about ISIS taking credit for his act of terrorism. He says the similarities to the 1995 McVeigh bombing are creepy. Well, we can discuss the idea of of folks like this being sort of helped along by the FBI, given fake bombs, et cetera, and whether they are in effect entrapping them at some point. But the but the point here is is that yet another white domestic terrorist is willing to carry out plots to try and attack the government. It's exactly what the Department of Homeland Security warned about years ago and that uh, and that law enforcement officials describe as a far greater threat to the nation than Islamic extremism. And yet the right has for years pretended and not just Donald Trump, but the, you know, the the whole of the Republican right has been pretending that that that's not the case. They even demanded the retraction of that DHS report years ago during the Obama administration. Um, detailing the concerns about domestic right-wing terrorism. Uh, And at the same time, those same Republicans said nothing about a very similar report about the dangers of terrorism from the left. That one's still out there. And uh, it's the same construct that Donald uh, Donald Trump has created to pretend that the greatest threat to the nation comes from Islamic extremists, Despite all evidence, frankly, to the contrary, and there is much of it, including the number of those killed in this country since 9-11 by domestic terrorism. All right. Speaking of uh, which, we yes, we are getting closer to Charlottesville here. Uh, The mayor of Lexington, Kentucky, is now taking action to remove two Confederate monuments from his city's former courthouse after the deadly clashes over the weekend in Virginia. Lexington Mayor Jim Gray revealed his intention on Saturday after the attack in Charlottesville. He said he planned to announce it this week, but the incident prompted him to declare his intentions earlier. He said, I'm taking action to relocate the Confederate statues. We have thoroughly examined the issue and heard from many of our citizens. The tragic events in Charlottesville today have accelerated the announcement I intended to make next week. He went on to say that today's events in Virginia, this was on Saturday, uh, remind us that we must bring our country together by condemning violence, white supremacists and Nazi hate groups. We cannot let them define our future. 
That came uh, on the heels of the violent clashes between white nationalists and counter-protesters, which left three people dead in Charlottesville, including a woman killed when a driver plowed into a group of counter-protesters. And, of course, dozens more were injured. The Dallas Morning News, no uh, no lefty pinko paper from your old hometown <laughs> there. Uh, no, Desi they are Doyen. not. Uh, They condemned Donald Trump over the weekend for failing to speak out against those white supremacist groups. They noted uh, the uh, Dallas Morning News editorial board uh, said protests and marches have long been a part of American history. They are part of what makes America great. The First Amendment protects the right of Americans to speak and to assemble publicly. Unfortunately, what we witnessed Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia, revealed the ugliness of America. What's worse is that in its aftermath, President Donald Trump had an opportunity to show real leadership, but couldn't bring himself to do it. There is no room for violence from any group, but on this day, it was all about white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and white nationalists. He, uh, the uh, Dallas uh, News uh, editorial board notes that uh, Donald Trump basically had a chance a golden opportunity, as they describe it, to condemn the violence and to speak out against white supremacists and white nationalists. But many of them supported him in his election against Hillary Clinton. And they say the country needed the leader of the nation to forcefully call out these ugly and un-American interests. Nonetheless, the best President Trump could uh, came up with to say was, we want to get this situation straightened out in Charlottesville and we want to study it. And we want to see what we're doing wrong as a country. He also blamed hatred, bigotry and violence on many sides, many sides, as he described it. Um, He took no questions from journalists after he had uh, Donald Trump did after making that uh, statement that uh, Dallas Morning News describes as Trump having failed his country. He took no questions uh, regarding even whether the event was terrorism, despite being very quick over the years to do exactly that, to call out attacks as terrorism, whether we know at the time whether they were or not. But he would not do that here in his own country as president. Uh, Even when, uh, you know, he would do it when the perpetrators were believed to be Islamic extremists, apparently, but not in this case uh, when... It looked very likely, what we have now found out, that this guy was, in fact, a white uh, nationalist, a a white extremist. Here was the press trying to get an answer from Donald Trump as he was walking off after his very brief statement not condemning the Nazis in Charlottesville. Mr. President, do you want the support of these white nationalist groups who say they support you, Mr. President? Mr. President have you, have you denounced them strongly enough? A car plotting a group of people, would you call that terrorism, sir? And he just walked away. Uh, the uh, other top Republicans, I'm happy to say, uh, did not seem to have the same problem calling out white nationalists and Nazis by name. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley tweeted, Uh, What white nationalists are doing in Charlottesville is homegrown terrorism that can't be tolerated. Uh, Cory Gardner, senator from a Republican senator from Colorado, saying uh, praying for those hurt and killed today in Charlottesville. There's nothing. This is nothing short of domestic terrorism and should be named as such. He said, Mr. President, we must call evil by its name. These were white supremacists and this was domestic terrorism. 
I mean, he couldn't even call it terrorism. No matter who was doing it, it was clearly terrorism. Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, said very important for the nation to hear the president describe events in Charlottesville for what they are, a terror attack by white supremacists. Orrin Hatch, Orrin Hatch of Utah, said on the uh, and this was on the night before violence had broken out on uh, on Saturday after the white supremacists on Friday night had marched through Charlottesville with tiki torches uh, torches he said their tiki torches may be fueled by citronella but their ideas are fueled by hate and have no place in civil society this is Orrin Hatch and then the next day he tweeted, we should call evil by its name. My brother didn't give his life fighting Hitler for Nazis, uh, fighting Hitler for Nazi ideas to go unchallenged here at home. And in Virginia itself, John Adams, the Republican nominee for attorney general. Uh, said that, uh, and this was before the worst of the uh, mayhem and deaths in uh, Charlottesville on Saturday, John Adams said, the Nazi ideology on display in Charlottesville is disgusting. Our greatest generation fought and crushed it. So will we. Well, that wasn't hard. And he's running for election in Virginia. Uh so, uh, of course, uh, you, you've heard by now, and I don't even want to play it because I want to get to our guest here momentarily. But uh, David Duke, the uh, white nationalist, former KKK grand wizard uh, in widely aired comments, uh, lauded uh, Trump's presidency and said, we are here. He was at the rally in Charlottesville, basically said we are here because of Donald Trump. And then after Donald Trump tweeted his uh, all sides, not naming anybody, but all sides, uh, Duke slammed that response, saying that Trump, quote, should take a good look in the mirror and remember it was white Americans who put you in the presidency, not radical leftists. So after decades of white Americans being targeted for discriminated, I think he meant discrimination, <laughs> And it's unclear to me what the hell, uh, how white Americans have been targeted for discrimination. But that's what uh, David Duke says. Maybe our guest can speak to that in a moment. Um, after being targeted for discrimination and anti-white hatred, we come together as a people and you attack us, Duke wrote. The uh, neo-Nazi Daily Stormer was delighted with uh, Donald Trump's comments when he failed to call them out. He said Trump's comments were uh, Daily Stormer said Trump's comments were good. He didn't attack us. He just said the nation should come together. Nothing specific against us. He said that we need to study why people are so angry and implied that there was hate on both sides. There was virtually no counter signal signaling of us at all. He said he loves us all. Also refused to answer a question about white nationalists supporting him. No condemnation at all. When asked to condemn, he just walked out of the room. Really, really good. God bless him, said the neo-Nazi uh, Daily Stormer. The site calls itself the world's most genocidal Republican website. Terry McAuliffe had no problem uh, <laughs> telling Nazis to go away. His response, unlike Donald Trump's on Saturday, Terry McAuliffe is the governor of, uh, of Virginia, called out the white nationalists and the Nazis by name. And I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Our message is plain and simple. Go home. 
You are not wanted in this great commonwealth. Shame on you. You pretend that you're patriots, but you are anything but a patriot. You want to talk about patriots, talk about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, who brought our country together. You think about the patriots today, the young men and women who are wearing the cloth of our country. Somewhere around the globe, they're putting their life in danger. They're patriots. You are not. You came here today to hurt people. And you did hurt people. But my message is clear. We are stronger than you. You have made our commonwealth stronger. You will not succeed. There is no place for you here. There is no place for you in America. That was Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, uh, Democratic Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, speaking on Saturday uh, after Donald Trump had spoken, after the president of the United States was unable to name uh, white supremacism and uh, white nationalism as a problem. Donald Trump, very quickly before we take a break here, uh, did take a mulligan today of sorts. He uh, made a statement from the uh, from the White House. Uh, here's part of that in which he finally did uh, name who were the instigators who showed up with guns and shields in Charlottesville, Virginia. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. We are a nation founded on the truth that all of us are created equal. We are equal in the eyes of our Creator. We are equal under the law. And we are equal under our Constitution. Those who spread violence in the name of bigotry strike at the very core of America. Well, that only took him three days to figure out. Yeah, that took a while. Uh, so there is that. Uh, was it enough? Uh, apparently, the uh, the white nationalist groups are, are they're happy again today because yes. he used the word uh, including. Yeah. The What did he say? Including uh, the white supremacists right including so the forth. kkk the use and, and actually william johnson who's head of the white nationalist mm-hmm. american freedom party uh he bankrolled bankrolled robocalls for trump during the campaign oh, yeah uh, he guy. told this to talking points memo he said i note that he condemned all racism including that coming from the kkk and neo-nazis he says the use of the word including indicates he believes there is a larger overarching source of racism besides the groups that are named i am pleased with what donald trump said so there you go uh so yeah white nationalist groups are still delighted today well let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with a former neo-nazi turned peace activist who uh, hopefully can give us some perspective into this entire uh twisted movement and frankly this twisted moment in american history and and whether the weekend's events will ultimately help to shine a light on these uh, on these hate groups or along with the uh, seeming encouragement there of the president of the United States ultimately embolden their cause. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In late June of this year, the Department of Homeland Security announced they were jumpstarting a $10 million Obama-era grant program aimed at countering violent extremism, but that they were withdrawing funding from a group that combats white supremacists, according to the Politico playbook. When former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson announced the program just days before President Trump's inauguration in June, he explained that 31 anti-extremism groups would be getting funding and, quote, among the awardees are organizations devoted specifically to countering the Islamic State's recruitment efforts in our homeland and life after hate an organization devoted to the rehabilitation of former neo-Nazis and other domestic extremists in this country. The Trump administration, though, will not be giving Life After Hate the $400,000 grant that the group had been promised under the Obama administration. And as Politico noted at the time back in June, it wasn't for a lack of need. Life After Hate, according to the organization's founder, Christian Picciolini, uh, in June has seen a 20-fold increase in requests for help since Election Day from people looking to disengage or bystanders and family members looking for help for someone they know. DHS did not comment to Politico when asked why Life After Hate's grant was rescinded by the Trump administration. In February, though, five people briefed on relevant conversations told Reuters at the time that the administration wanted to rename the Countering Violent Extremism grants as Countering Islamic Extremism or maybe Countering Radical Islamic Extremism. Well, that might explain the change. In June of 2015, the nonpartisan New American Foundation think tank concluded that since 9-11, White, uh, white right-wing terrorists have killed almost twice as many Americans in homegrown attacks than have radical Islamists. Uh, the in Intercept reported in May of this year that the news of the Trump administration's intended swap of violent extremism for Islamic extremism specifically prompted the editor of the neo-Nazi Daily Stormer to gloat, quote, Donald Trump is setting us free. That's the same neo-Nazi Daily Stormer website that celebrated Donald Trump's response to the violence in Charlottesville on Saturday by 
when uh, Trump did not name neo-Nazi or white nationalist or KKK groups in his condemnation of, quote, many sides who he blamed for the violence that led to the death of a 32-year-old woman and dozens of others who were injured when a car driven by a man who appears to be a white extremist plowed into a crowd of anti-Nazi protesters. Joining us now with some perspective, both on Saturday's deadly protests in Charlottesville and the Trump administration's response to it, as well as uh, to the white nationalism movement as a whole, is Tony McAleer. He's a former neo-Nazi turned peace advocate who is co-founder and board chair of Life After Hate, a group dedicated to helping neo-Nazis transition away from extremism. Life After Hate is a Chicago-based nonprofit organization created in 2011 by former members of the American violent far-right extremist movement with the goal of countering the seeds of hate that they once planted. Tony himself is a former organizer for the White Aryan Resistance, where he served as a skinhead recruiter and manager of a racist rock band. Tony is now a motivational speaker and, as executive director of Life After Hate, shares his practice of compassion as a presenter of the group's Kindness Not Weakness curriculum. Tony McAleer, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you joining us here. Uh, I want to discuss your personal background, because I know that Life After Hate uh, uses uh, personal stories like your own to sort of uh, spread the message uh, to folks. I also want to talk about the president's troubling response to what happened over the weekend and get your thoughts on that. But I think a lot of folks are still trying to figure out uh, what actually happened over the weekend. I know that the, the neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups were ostensibly in Charlottesville to uh, to protest the city's plan uh, to remove Confederate statues, in this case uh, of uh, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. But clearly, these marches are about much more than that. And with Republicans controlling both houses of Congress and the White House and most state legislatures and, and, and governor's mansions, what is it that these white supremacists literally are calling for? What are they protesting for? What is it that they are actually demanding from the government at this point? Well, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. This isn't uh, this isn't about Charlottesville. Um, this isn't in Charlottesville's uh, DNA, and it's uh, and it's. I think to be honest, it's not even about the statue. I mm-hmm. think the the removal of of the statues. I think is deemed as a as a battle line that's been drawn in. I think their perceived threat of of political correctness, and I think they perceive it as. Um, the removal of the statues as erasing white history, mm. so that that that's the confed the memory of the Confederacy is being being erased, and I think that's what they perceive. I'm not saying that that's the case. That's what they perceive, and I think that's that's a uh, philosophical and political battle line that they've drawn. Most of the people I think that were there aren't even from the South, so it it, it doesn't really make sense from that perspective. <clears throat> but I think this has been brewing. For some time, and and unfortunately, I, it's not a surprise that the violence has escalated to the point where someone has been murdered. Um, you know, I think uh, you know California. I think you you saw this alt right mm-hmm. um, antifa clash start at UC Berkeley mm-hmm. uh, on a smaller scale. Right. It's they had I think two or three battles there. Then then the, the battle lines ended up in Portland. 
uh, and they went at it a couple of times up there, and then now it's moved to a different focal point, which is which is Charlottesville, and it's it's an escalation, I think, of those uh, those battle lines, and uh, it, it's growing. Like it's it, this is by far larger than anything that happened at uh, at UC Berkeley or it, it, or Portland. It's bizarre to me um, when I see a lot of these folks who are lined up, including the guy who uh, allegedly drove that car into that crowd of people, uh, these young uh, young white men, many of them seem fairly well-to-do. And I was reading a CNN report over the weekend, Tony. Uh, let me just uh, read a sentence or two from this. As a young man, Trump raised the card of reverse discrimination when the Trump organization was forced to follow fair housing practices. Next came his counterfactual observation on national TV that because of affirmative action policies, young black men enjoyed unfair advantages in life. This kind of talk continued until Trump attached himself to the racist birther movement during the Obama presidency, which was a thinly disguised effort to delegitimize the first black man to win the presidency, as CNN describes it. It seems the reason I, I mention this is because it seems looking at those folks in Charlottesville, uh, looking at guys like Trump, it seems like a lot of the leaders uh, in the movement that we do hear from in the uh, white nationalist movement, those who feel aggrieved, actually came from some pretty prosperous backgrounds. Guys like Trump and, and, and Richard Spencer, who is credited with... Uh, uh, the euphemism alt right uh, for for a white you know for the white nationalist movement, uh, guys like White House uh, advisor Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka. So I could understand perhaps if uh, you know these folks sort of worked their way up from poverty or some such, and uh, you know had some complaint about the system. But I don't understand the complaint of these otherwise very well-to-do Americans. It seems is it simply about racism or is what is going on, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Well, I, I think, you know, those people, you know, we'll take, you know, take Richard Spencer, for example, mm -hmm. come from, uh, you know, multi-million dollar right. families, absolutely. But it's about, it's about um, the power that they get through influencing um, and manipulating very real people who... Um, you know, I, I think in the Western world in general, mm -hmm. uh, working class and middle class people of all stripes um, have not fared the best under uh, globalist um, economic policies. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's been a decline in the standard of living across the bottom four uh, quintiles of American society. So there's, there's a sense of dissatisfaction that they're tapping into, um, because as wealthy people their own voices aren't loud enough to do anything. Mm -hmm. For them to exercise any sort of power, they have to have um, a base of people that have been um, affected. And, and I, I think we need to, um, you know, populism, you know, is often criticized as being anti-democratic. And I really believe that populism is an essential part of democracy. And for me, populism is like the check engine light going on in your car. Mm -hmm. It's telling you that something is systemically wrong and needs to be addressed. Populism, rarely does it ever have the right answer, but it often poses the right question. And I think in this last election, um, you had someone saying, hey, I hear your pain, uh, and I've got an answer for you, and it may not be the right answer, um, 
and then another side saying you got nothing to you got nothing to complain about what what are you what are you talking about mm. and for people that are in that place of feeling that economic dislocation um what i heard during the election over and over and over again was um you know he says what i'm too afraid to to say out loud. What I think, but I'm too afraid to say. Yeah, but it wasn't just in that case, it wasn't just, uh, you know, a populist economic message. It seems to be clearly, uh, at, at least with these folks in the white nationalists, the neo-Nazi movement, uh, much more than an economic message, no? I mean, this is... Oh, no, but the, the, yeah. the, economic, the economic message, um, their message doesn't thrive unless people are in a place of pain looking for someone to blame. Mm. So... Uh, at a time when everybody's enjoying abundance and affluence, mm-hmm. things tend to be, people tend to get along. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when things aren't so well, they start looking for someone to blame, and you've got a, a, a large group of people looking for answers, mm-hmm. and then you've got demagogues stepping forward and, and offering um, simplistic solutions and answers that, uh, that aren't correct, but uh, people are buying into them. And I truly believe that the level to which we're willing to dehumanize another human being is a reflection of how internally disconnected and dehumanized we are within within ourselves and you know who joins an extremist group if you look at the university of maryland's research in their start program which is the study of terrorism and responses to terrorism the number one correlated factor in the history of somebody joining a violent extremist group is childhood trauma Mm. that was the, the metric that they looked at and i think it's less about the physical and sexual abuse component, but the emotional abuse that goes with it. You can have emotional abuse without a physical component, such as neglect. So what does that emotional abuse do to a young person? When we're young, um, it helps inform a very unhealthy sense of identity and sense of self. And I think uh, uh, one of my favorite authors on the subject of, he called it Toxic Shame, is John Bradshaw. Great book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. He talked about, for him, as an addictions person, toxic shame is the root of all addiction. Well, it's the root of a whole host, um, a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes, of which um, dehumanizing others, racism, and violent extremism um, are part of. Can you give me a sense of your own uh, personal story here? I know that's what uh, lifeafterhate.org uh, does, is uh, uh, folks like you share your stories with the public. How, how were you drawn into the uh, neo-Nazi, white Aryan movement, and, and when and why did you realize you needed to pull out of it on a personal level? Sure. I, I came from an upper-middle-class doctor's family, my my dad was a psychiatrist. See, you're you're one of the people that I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's um, because my dad was a psychiatrist. We all know about psychiatrists. <laughs> yes. You know, we've heard we we've heard the story of the cobbler's kids that go to school with holes in their shoes. Right. What do you think the psychiatrist kid goes to school? With? Right. Um, but I was a bright, sensitive, curious, mm-hmm. mischievous, defiant, a bit stubborn. You know, if I look at who little Tony was. Uh-huh. Um, because nobody comes into the world as a neo-Nazi, and I was sort of this mostly sensitive kid growing up in a in a space where it wasn't safe to be emotionally sensitive. Um, I had walked in when I was 10 on my father with another woman, mm. and that was when, you know, maybe your listeners can relate to the time where the god fell off the pedestal, mm. and uh, our parents become all too human. Yeah. Um, and I was confused. I felt betrayed. I, I was 
certainly very, very angry. And that's going to all boys Catholic school. That's when I started to act out. And I went from a uh, straight A student at the age of 10 to a C student uh, by the time I was 11. And, you know, to compound things, um, the school, my teacher got together with my parents and they sort of both agreed that they should try and beat the grades into me. And if I didn't get an A or a B on major tests or assignment, I was sent uh, down to the office where I had to bend over a desk and get hit on the rear end with a yardstick. Oh, my God, literally. Literally. You know, it was like, you know, I'd have to wait there for five or ten minutes for the teacher. You know, I always wanted, you know, one minute more. I don't know if you listeners can probably relate to a time where, you know, something really bad's about to happen. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. If I, if I think about now, those times in that office, I have never, ever, even to this day, felt more powerless than wow. I did. Wow. I did then, and... Uh, Tony, do you feel that, uh, obviously, with, with that background, then you begin to reach out to look for something, someone, anyone. Uh, you were drawn into the uh, White Aryan movement. Could it have as easily been another movement that you were drawn into? Had you, you know, come across, uh, you know, an artistic club or, you know, something else that would have drawn you in? Why uh, specifically did you move into the White Aryan uh, resistance? Well, it it was music that took me there, mm-hmm. and I went from listening to Elton John and Queen to The Clash and The Sex Pistols, and and uh, it sort of I got into the punk rock scene, and it was really uh, a switch over from the punk rock scene into the skinhead scene when the two were mm-hmm. were uh, very active together. Mm-hmm. That I found, um, you know, an outlet for my anger. The you know the skinhead thing. I was born in England, so the the, the pro Britishness of it was very very big, and it was a music and a youth subculture that gave me permission um, to be violent. And I wasn't—I didn't have violence in the home growing up. I wasn't you know, when I started out. I wasn't a good street fighter, um, but I found the violence. You know, and I'll be honest, it—it it was the new. It was a, a rush of adrenaline, hmm. and it was intoxicating, and I liked it. What? What? And I felt safe with these guys, where I didn't. You know, it was. You know, compensating my. My whole bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. And mm-hmm. the guys that I had aligned myself with um, were were skinheads. And, you know, when I first met them, they actually wanted to rob me of my Doc Martens, but ended up becoming my best friends in the end. And and I thought I sought the safety in sort of the eye of the hurricane. And for me to have their protection, um, I had to have their respect. And for me to have their respect, I had to engage in all the same violence they did. What do uh, what problems uh, did you or or just uh, these young men in this movement? What what problems do they have? Simply quitting it at some point. Why are organizations like yours, like like Life After Hate, uh, necessary to help them do that? I mean, once they realize, oh, this is a problem, can they just pull themselves out, or do they really need support groups like uh, like Life After Hate? Well. I managed to do it on my own, and so did the other co-founders. But it took an awfully long, a long time, and and it is it is difficult to do. But you know, the challenge is, is when we go and join these groups, we excommunicate ourselves from friends, family, and society. You know, we're not getting our emotional needs met and our sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. We mm-hmm. abandon all of that, throw that away, and um, 
go to run away with the circus, so to speak, and we join the, you know, the, mm. one of these violent groups. And, you know, there comes a, po- a point where uh, the fantasy of it all, because so much of it is based on, on fantasy, fantasy meets reality, and people start to question where they're at. It takes an awful lot of energy to be that angry and pissed off all the time, mm. to be that hateful. It's draining. If you look at anyone that's been in the movement for an entire lifetime, mm-hmm. worn out, withered, bitter, angry human beings, you can see it. You can see that they've been destroyed by it. When people want to leave, they've got to leave that behind. But when we excommunicate ourselves in the first place, we violated the trust in those relationships. They're not sitting there waiting with open arms, welcome us back. Mm. So the hardest part is actually the loneliness, because you have to go through a couple of years of not having any social group that that wants to embrace you. I see. You know, one of the challenges in coming back from this, you know, you could say, hey, <clears throat> I used to be a drug addict. Um, you know, I, I could be a whole host of different things, mm-hmm. and people are accepting. They'll say, oh, that's great. You know, let's, you say, I used to be a neo-Nazi. People don't want anything to do with you. Right. It, it's not an easy thing to come back from. So life after hate has, <clears throat> one of the things we have is this, online uh, private Facebook support group where we have a whole pile of people that we're supporting and they're supporting each other now. So it's almost like self-sustaining, mm-hmm. helping people in that journey to, to cross that, that void. And from there, we can refer them out to therapy and counseling and get them help in the communities in which, in which they live so that they can make that transition back to their humanity. And we deal with it as it, it's a human issue and people don't need their beliefs changed they need and when we reconnect them to their humanity the beliefs no longer make sense because if i can't connect i can't recognize the humanity in others and the second i start to connect to my own humanity i start to recognize the humanity in others and and things start to shift. Were, were you ever, uh, Tony McAleer, were you ever given an explanation from the White House or the Department of Homeland Security? I mentioned that uh, grant at the uh, top of this segment. Were you ever given an explanation as to why they decided uh, to stop funding your group? Uh, or is that still, uh, have they uh, rescinded that decision to rescind what had uh, the previous administration had promised? Do you have any idea why all of a sudden the seemingly very important work that your group is doing is uh, all of a sudden not of interest to this White House? Yeah, the, the official word we were given is that the, the um, metrics used to evaluate the proposal was being altered. Um, and under the new metric, um, it's one of the highest scoring grants. So they sort of changed the way that they evaluated the grants. I just, like, the $400,000 was not all for life after hate. Mm-hmm. This was, so we were the primary applicant on a consortium type bid. Mm-hmm. And it was to use, we technology partner who was going to help us identify radicalizing and radicalized individuals using uh, public data sources. Half of the effort was actually geared towards doing outreach and intervention on the ISIS and Al-Qaeda-inspired side. So it was 50% white supremacist, 50% ISIS Al-Qaeda-inspired. And one of the biggest criticisms of uh, countering violent extremism or CVE work is that uh, there's no proof that any of it works. And we actually, as part of the bid, had a former DHS data scientist uh, 
who's an academic, widely respected, who was going to set the metrics for success and evaluate um, our program to determine its effectiveness. And the methodology and uh, using social media that we were going to do was something that we were part of testing successfully before with uh, mm-hmm. with a think tank out of London. So it, it, I, I'm still bewildered as to as to why they didn't... Uh, Do you have a personal well, uh, thought, uh, which you may or may not wish to express, as to why this particular administration decided to uh, continue the funding for anti, you know, ISIS groups, but not for uh, groups, not anti-neo-Nazi groups like your own? I mean, as a 501c, we have to be careful as to what we, we say. It just makes it makes no no sense to uh to me given you know mm-hmm. the the facts that <laughs> since 2015 as of 2015 mm-hmm. uh post 911 more than it's the numbers 2 to 1 for the number of Americans killed on uh, american soil by far right white supremacists versus mm-hmm. isis al qaeda inspired individuals the, the uh, we, We've been speaking about the criticism that uh, President Trump received over the weekend for failing to address the neo-Nazi and white nationalist groups, specifically choosing instead to condemn hatred and bigotry on many sides. Uh, very quickly, we've got just a minute or two left here, Tony. What is the effect of that as you see it for... Uh, for these white nationalist groups, and is it important for the president of the United States to specifically call them out uh, by name, as as he did with a bit more specificity uh, during a, a bit of a mulligan uh, statement that he took today at the White House? I think that it's important for community leaders at all levels um, to condemn this for for what it is. It's not just in Charlottesville. This is this has the potential to be everywhere and tomorrow it will be be somewhere else and you know mm-hmm. the this last weekend in charlottesville was only one week after the fifth anniversary of the uh oak creek temple massacre where a white supremacist went in and killed six sikhs in their temple mm-hmm. um these things happen and it is real and there's unfortunately too many deaths associated with it to to ignore it and i wish uh I wish the current administration would have a second look at things. Last question before we go, Tony. Um, does uh, as I, as we try to uh, find something uh, optimistic here, something positive out of what happened, does a tragic event like the one that we saw over the weekend uh, and and the condemnation that came from pretty much all corners, if not the president himself, but pretty much everyone else, uh, does does that embolden groups like this, uh, that, that condemnation, or is that, in fact, uh, a setback to their cause as you see it? I ask because I, I wonder if ultimately, you know, this is a good thing that uh, so many people are sort of seeing this stuff now out in the open and on display uh, has, as, has happened in the three or four days since Charlottesville. Conflict is what these groups thrive on. Conflict and media attention. That is the oxygen through which they thrive. And unfortunately, with the events of this weekend, they have got uh, uh, a heap of press and they've got all the conflict um, that they need to uh, become emboldened, enraged, and there, see, I told you so kind of thing. Mm. I remember going through exactly the same 
hunger for conflict and media attention when I was actively involved. And um, the best thing we can do is um, is to not confront them violently. That feeds them, um, and and to starve them of the attention that they desire. You know, imagine throwing a birthday party, nobody shows up. Mm. You know, and I think it's hard to do, but that's um, that's what feeds the beast. I think you're absolutely right, and I think when uh, people bring on folks like David Duke and Richard Spencer and 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 uh, you know those folks and give them airtime to share their grievances, uh, it makes matters worse. Hopefully, uh, calling them out and uh, work like you guys are doing at Life After Hate uh, is turning that back at least a little bit. Tony McAleer. Really appreciate you joining us today and appreciate all the work that you're doing as co-founder and board chair at lifeafterhate.org. I would uh, recommend folks check out your work uh, there and on the Twitters at lifeafterhate and your own personal Twitter account, uh, McAleer, M-C-A-L-E-E-R. And you know what? If nothing else, in in lieu of this uh, grant from the federal government, hopefully people are realizing that uh, it's important to support groups like lifeafterhate.org. So uh, hopefully there's that that comes out of this. Tony McAleer, really appreciate you joining us here today on the broadcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Tony. Okay, quick break. We're back with a few closing stories here. Um And, yep, some breaking news from AP. Right on time. It's Trump o'clock. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yep. Kind of a mad world we're living in, ain't it, Desi Doyle? Yes, sadly it is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, the... um, Well, here's a case where uh, Donald Trump did not have a problem condemning... Someone almost immediately, the chief executive of pharmaceutical company Merck said on Monday in a tweet that he was resigning from President Trump's manufacturing council, saying he was doing so, quote, as CEO of Merck and as a matter of personal conscience. He said that America's leaders must honor our fundamental values by clearly rejecting expressions of hatred, bigotry and group supremacy, which run counter to the American ideal that all people are created equal. In the statement, uh, this is uh, Kenneth Frazier, one of the few African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500. He said, quote, I feel a responsibility to take a stand against intolerance and extremism. And he touted the power of diversity. He said, our country's strength stems from its diversity and the contributions made by men and women of different faiths, races, sexual orientations and political beliefs. So that was his statement dropping out of Trump's manufacturing council within an hour after that statement was first issued. 
Trump tweeted his initial response to Frazier, quote, Now that Ken Frazier of Merck Pharma has resigned from President's Manufacturing Council, he will have more time to, all caps, lower ripoff drug prices. Wow. Didn't take him long at all to figure that one out, no. to attack an African-American man. That came easy. That seems to come uh, very easy for Donald Trump. But attacking white supremacists and Nazis, uh, not so much. That one he's got to labor over for three days before sort of co- kind of coming out against them. All right, one more here before we go. Bringing today's show full circle uh, back to North Korea, where I suspect we're going to be... Uh, well, we will be uh, keeping our eyes out over the next uh, next several days. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said on Monday that if North Korea follows through on its threat to fire a missile at the U.S., quote, it's game on. Apparently, Jim Mattis now thinks he's in an action-adventure movie as well. Speaking to reporters, Mattis added that the U.S. military would, quote, take out any North Korean missile as it detects Uh, Any North Korean missile that it detects is heading for American soil. Well, that's good. Including Guam, which is a U.S. territory. Mattis said the U.S. would detect a missile of that nature heading towards Guam, quote, within moments. Mattis added that if North Korea fires at the U.S., it could, quote, escalate into war very quickly. Yes, that's called war if they shoot at us. So, um... That was uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis today, uh, con- continuing the saber rattling with North Korea. And uh, just moments ago, the story is not even up yet, but here's the headline from AP Breaking. North Korea says leader briefed on plans for missile tests near Guam. Now, I should note that's not altogether a surprise. Uh, they had said they were uh, the um, <clears throat> the uh, North Korean uh uh, uh, military officials had said that they were working out this plan to uh, fire a salvo of missiles towards the waters off of Guam, that they would be sharing this with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to get his approval in what they described as mid-August. Well, we're at mid-August at this point. They have now shared that with uh, North Korean uh, leader Kim Jong-un. And now we have to hope that the uh, more sensible one in this uh, standoff turns out to be Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Oh, great. Everything is going great. We will be back with uh, more greatness tomorrow on the broadcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Tony McAleer of LifeAfterHate.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, or any other, you can download it for free at any time at bradblog.com. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.